debate uh, as I begin, that uh, this sermon is brought to you at least partially by Paul's extra strong mentholictus and Tesco brand imitation Lemsip. Uh, other cold remedies are available. Uh, so if I collapse into coughing fits halfway through, that's why, and um, hopefully I will recover and continue and, and all will be well. If you've uh, been coming uh, along to Morton Road for the last three weeks, you'll know that we've been tracing a series through the Old Testament, picking up that the motif of substitution, we've been looking at substitution in the Old Testament as that speaks to us as Christians. And we've, we've seen three pictures. We've seen Abraham fumbling with the cords with which he tied Isaac, his son, to the altar and rejoicing at the fact that God has provided a ram who will die in Isaac's place and Isaac will live. We saw a substitution. And we've seen Israelite families in Egypt huddled together in their homes at night. The blood splashed on their doorposts from the lamb who died in the place of the firstborn so that they could be saved. And we've seen the high priest on the Day of Atonement uh, laying his hands on the head of a goat and confessing all of the sins of Israel and then driving that goat away into the wilderness because those sins are taken away whilst the other goat is killed in the place of the sinful people. We've seen this picture building and building like a recurrent motif in a piece of music getting louder and clearer and now as we get towards Isaiah, as we get into Isaiah's prophecy, and we see Isaiah's description of this character called the servant of the Lord, this theme is loud and clear and covers over everything else. In fact, this is the loudest and clearest it gets in the Old Testament. I'd be tempted to say that once we get into Isaiah 52 and 53, really, the New Testament has kind of burst its banks and flooded over into the Old Testament. And we are talking about Jesus clearly in ways that we can hardly mistake. In fact, it's extremely easy if you know the Christian story, you know the gospel story of Jesus, to forget that Isaiah is writing 700 years in advance of the events because it fits so perfectly, carries those themes so fantastically. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to look at uh, these verses from Isaiah 52 and 53 under three headings. Uh, the substitute servant, the satisfied servant, and the saving servant. Um, they alliterate, isn't that great? Pleases me. <clears throat> so we start with the substitute servant. Uh, Isaiah 52, 13 to 15 really, really provide a sort of paradoxical overview of what is going on in these verses. The servant is described as, as raised up and exalted and wise, but also as, as disfigured, as unattractive. Uh, the people around him are described as appalled at his appearance, not wanting anything to do with him. But then by the end, even kings have to shut their mouths in his presence and listen to him. That is like a, a little overture to chapter 53. That is what chapter 53 is going to be about. And as we go into chapter 53 itself, Isaiah the prophet sort of casts his prophetic imagination, his inspired imagination forward, and he invites us to stand with him in the company of Jesus' contemporaries, 
and to experience with them their reactions to this suffering servant of the Lord. We're invited to stand there with them and share in those reactions. And let me be honest, uh, they're not good or encouraging reactions. Let's start with the, the beginnings of this servant, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. There's nothing auspicious about the beginning of this servant. There's nothing exciting about it. He doesn't come from a grand situation. It's just like a little root. It's like a tiny shoot growing up. To be honest, if somebody came along and stamped on it, that would be the end of it. A weak beginning. His appearance. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The reaction of people to this uh, servant's appearance were just to say, no, whatever. Nothing noteworthy about him. Nothing that would make us think, yeah, that guy is going to be important. Nothing noteworthy. The reception that he got from the people around him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Like one from whom people hide their faces. Like, um, you probably don't do this because you're lovely and wonderful people. But um, imagine you're, you're wandering through town and, and you see somebody who you sort of know and kind of wish you didn't know. And, uh, and they're sort of waving and you're looking away. Didn't see him, didn't see him, walking away. That is the sort of reaction that this servant gets. We'd rather not see him. We'd, we'd rather not have anything to do with him, to be honest. Uh, with a bit of luck, he won't see us over here and we can get away. And his fate, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And to be honest, there's nothing desirable or glorious about this. We look at the servant and all we see is suffering and all we see is pain. I think that's part of the reason why nobody wants to look at him, to be honest. Nobody wants to see that. It's unpleasant. It disturbs our day. The conclusion that Isaiah describes, that Jesus' contemporaries draw from all of this, is here is a man who is being uniquely punished by God for sin. Look at him. He's got nothing. He looks like nothing. And he is suffering appallingly. Here is a man whom God is uniquely punishing. Isaiah traces that reaction for us and invites us to stand with those people. He wants us to stand with them, I think, because we need to ask ourselves, what is our reaction to Jesus? The single most important question we could ask how do I react to God's servant when he comes into the world? I'm guessing, if we're honest, that all of us have, at times, reacted to Jesus in just the way that these people did. So, that song, isn't there, contains the line, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Because I haven't treated Jesus as I should have done. I have sometimes despised him, wanted nothing to do with him, pretended not to know him because it makes my life easier. 
Isaiah says, if you stand with these contemporaries of this servant and see their reactions, you will realize that you are not so very different. And as for their conclusion, they're astonishingly right. Astonishingly right. This man is being uniquely punished for sin. They're also incredibly, phenomenally, stupendously wrong. Because it is not his sin for which he is suffering. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, is portrayed by the prophet here as carrying our wrongdoing, carrying sin of the world to the cross. He is loaded down with our guilt, with my sin. This is substitution. My transgressions. He was pierced. My iniquities. He was crushed. My punishment. He was wounded. We could list our sins. Let's not, it would be uncomfortable for all of us. But we could list our sins from the, the big ones to the, the petty selfishness that characterizes day by day life. And so, he took it all to the cross and was punished for it. He bore it in my place. And he did it willingly. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Not a word of protest. He did it willingly. He was a willing substitute. It's one of the uh, major differences, isn't it? As we've seen this theme develop. The ram who was substituted for Isaac was caught in a thicket by his horns. If he hadn't been caught in a thicket, I think he would have run away. The, the, the lamb at the Passover had been raised and kept in the house for a few weeks as a, as a pet almost before he was killed. Otherwise, I don't think he would have volunteered for the job. The two goats don't have any say in their fate. In fact, it is picked by chance as to which one will die and which one will be released. But this substitute, servant of the Lord, willingly takes on the sin of his people, pays for it, and deals with it. And that is love. According to the Bible, that is the very definition of love. That Jesus Christ, who had done nothing wrong, take on the blame and the punishment, all of the wrongdoing that I have committed. That was the end of the story. 
it would not be good news. It would be tragic. It would be tragic. A servant died in the place of others. That is very sad. Something heroic about it, perhaps. But frankly, not world-changing good news. Good Friday is only good because we know that Easter Sunday comes after it. See, the sheep of the sin offering and the goats and the bulls and all of the other animals, they died and they stayed dead. It's a thing that happens to sheep when you kill them, I gather. They stayed dead. And so if there was more sin, if I sinned again, I would need another sheep. And then when I sinned again, another sheep, and on and on and on and on. And we saw last week that that is one clear sign that these animal sacrifices could never really deal with our sin. Could never really deal with the fact that we are all crooked inside and turned away from God and will not live as we ought to. How is this servant different? Well, I have to say, initially, it doesn't look promising. He was assigned, verse 9, a grave with the wicked. <coughs> As he'd been misunderstood and despised throughout his life, this servant was now misunderstood and despised in death and was assigned a grave with the wicked, burial pit. As an aside, there's also a rich man who pops up in this verse and has something to do with his burial. And as one commentator says, the verse is almost impossible to understand if you don't actually know the fulfillment of it already. But of course, Jesus would have been assigned a grave with the wicked if it weren't for the fact that the rich man Nicodemus came along, asked for his body, and placed him in the tomb of a rich man. It's just a little detail, but it's, it's wonderful that scripture works like that, isn't it? But unlike all of the substitutes that we've seen already, unlike all of the offerings of the Old Testament, there is an afterwards for this servant. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After suffering, after pouring out his life, after paying with his own blood for the sins of the world, can there be an after? Because that's death, which is the final word for all of us, except it is not. After that, he will see his offspring. We see this played out in the New Testament as Jesus gathers followers after his death, as he builds his church after his death, as after his death, the news about him and what he has done goes across the world and people from all cultures and backgrounds come to worship him. He will see his offspring after his death. His days will be prolonged. Isaiah is, is stretching here, as he does in several other parts of his prophecy. This man who was dead, his days will be prolonged. His life will go on. He will live forever. He will not die again. 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This servant who was utterly despised and who went to the cross and who suffered is now the one who carries out the will of God for the whole of the universe. And that will will prosper in his hand. He will see it through, see it done. He's now on the throne. And all of this after his suffering. After he has suffered, this is verse 11, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. I love that. I love the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, after all of the agony, after all of the pain, after giving up his spirit, sees the light of life and is satisfied, is pleased. The Lord Jesus looks at the results of all of his work and says, worth it, good, happy with it. He's alive. We really need to get this. To sort of um, go back to the, the musical analogy, bear in mind, I have no understanding of music whatsoever, so this might not even work. But let's pretend that I do know what's going on. When we get to Good Friday and we see the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. He is saying, everything that was written about me here in this prophecy of Isaiah has been done. I have paid all of the sins of my people. I have carried away all of their guilt. But if you like, it is still in a minor key. It is good news, but it is good news in a minor key. He is still suffering. He is still about to die. If you want to hear that same thing transposed into a major key, if you want to be able to sing it with joy, you need Easter Sunday. You need to get to today. And you need to hear him in the garden saying, Mary. Now again, use Isaiah's method. Put yourself there. Imagine yourself in that place. She must have wept. Because I will just think of you. You need to, to place yourself hearing Jesus say, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Words. I'm going prepare a place for you. You need to to feel your heart burning within you, like those two disciples on the Emmaus Road, as he explains that this had to happen. The suffering was the precursor to the glory, and now he is entering into that glory because he has paid the sin once and for all. You need to stand with John on the island of Patmos and hear that the dazzling Jesus Christ, whose voice is like the sound of many waters, say, Behold, I am alive forevermore. It is done. It is sorted. And then Good Friday is good, when you look back at it from that perspective. 
And even Jesus Christ himself, who went through the agony, satisfied, is pleased. Really can't do better than the kids talk at that point, can you? So, how do you feel about this good news? Is it good news to you? Do you recognize yourself as one of those sinners for whom Jesus died? Because if so, you are one of those for whom he also rose from the dead. And one of those with whom he is satisfied, pleased, his offspring. Finally, the saving servant. By his knowledge, verse 11, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Justify, to, to declare righteous. So we could read that, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many others righteous. By his knowledge? Yes because he knew what had to be done and he did it. Because of his death and resurrection, he will make many to be righteous. He will make many to stand in a position where they can say, God is my heavenly Father who loves me, and there is nothing, no wrongdoing or sin, that comes between me and God, because my Saviour Jesus is born of the way. And I know I know for sure that it worked because he is alive. He is risen. Stands now with the Father in heaven. Salvation is a bit of a, a sort of Christian buzzword. Uh, we can empty it of meaning very easily. And Isaiah actually gives us a, a, a big, big picture of salvation. We don't have time to look at it, sadly. We could spend all day uh, just traipsing back and forth in Isaiah, and, and that would be a wonderful night. I'd enjoy it very much, although my throat would give out at some point. But Isaiah says in chapter 65, where he records God as saying, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. I'm making everything new. And that is a recurrent theme as well through Scripture. We could trace that from the beginning to the end. God is making everything new. And the glorious thing about Easter Sunday, the glorious thing about the resurrected servant of the Lord, is that he is the one who will carry that will through to completion. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He is the one who will make everything new. And we know that because his resurrected body, his resurrection life, is the beginning of the new creation. The idea of a kind of a, a remade cosmos, a remade universe where everything is right and good is not a sort of dream. It's not an empty wish. It's not something we really, really hope might perhaps come true. It is firm and guaranteed because it is based on the fact that Jesus Christ is already raised into new creation life. And he invites each of us to join him, 
Everything has changed. The world is not the same anymore. Jesus is raised. The world is not the same anymore because our servant bore our sin away and rose to life again. Again, I wonder what your response is. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to take bread and wine. That is for people who know the Lord Jesus was their substitute, that he bore on the cross punishment that they deserved, that he took away their every wrong thing that they had ever done and ever will do for all eternity. We can eat it with joy because we know that when he had paid, he rose and he saw the light of life and was satisfied. Sometimes um, we talk about this as coming to the Lord's table. Ah, it makes good sense. Because the Lord is alive. He is the host for this meal. He gives it to us to remind us that he has paid and it is finished. Perhaps you're not there yet. Perhaps you're not sure. Perhaps this all seems a bit weird. And let's face it, it's a very old book. Some of the concepts in the language is a bit weird for us. But if it's real, I mean, if it's not just words on a page, if in real space and real time, Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb, does change the world. That changes everything. You'd be a fool to ignore it. Do at least look into it a bit more. Were his claims true? Was he really God walking amongst us? Can I trust him? Take away my sin. Give me an eternal home with God in the new creation.